great stuff. Well, let's read a passage from the Bible together to start off with, shall we? Uh, This morning we were thinking about what happened when Jesus left the upper room and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's look at what happened just before then. He prayed. Yes, they sang a song and we talked about that, but he also prayed. And in John chapter 17, you see what Jesus was praying for his people as he left them to go to the cross and then on to heaven. And uh, he asks his father about uh, what his, uh, to, to, to keep his people safe. John chapter 17 verse 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. When I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost, except the one doomed to destruction, that's Judas, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not to take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I have sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And now, here comes us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And of course the church started up shortly after that. Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. The day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit descended on disciples in an upper room and from there on in, the church spread all over the ancient world. While that was going on, the Apostle Paul started writing letters. <laughs> and uh, just a few more verses from Ephesians chapter 5, where he writes to people who were those early churches about what the church, the people of God, is supposed, are, are supposed to look like. So Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verse 8 says this, You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light exists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that appears to be the chorus of one of the earliest Christian hymns. And so he goes on to say, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't just sing the songs, live the life. (laughs) So that's what the church was supposed from the start to be about. And uh, over the last few months, as you know, we've been looking at various objections that people have to the Christian faith. And tonight we've reached this one. The great question for the night is, the church, is it Christianity's worst advert? Is it, when you look at what the church actually is, is it a million miles away from that vision that Jesus had for it? And does that mean that the church therefore is discredited and the whole business can be safely forgotten about? Well, we should have started that one last week. 
for some reason the preacher didn't turn up and so we're a week behind. So what I'm going to do tonight, I think, is just simply talk about why people say this kind of thing, the kinds of accusations that are made against the church, give some possible points we can use in answer to that, not my big three, but uh, I'll do that tonight and just fill in the background and next time I come, in a week's time, I'll, I, we'll, we'll really be talking about the question of life after death and reincarnation and do you come back for another shot after this life. That's really what it's about next, but I'll take a little uh, five minute slot at the start of the, the next talk to fill in those uh, uh, three key things that you can say to someone who raises objections against the church to you. And uh, also the key passages of scripture you might want to have at your fingertips if you want to show them in the Bible what uh, the, the, the church is going to be like according to Jesus. Anyhow, let's, uh, let's just have a look at the first thing tonight. You might remember seeing this slide a few weeks ago. Uh, I quoted John Lennon back in 1964 who caused a storm by saying, Jesus is all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. This was where he made his famous statement that uh, Christianity will go, it will vanish and fade. Uh, Lenin has disappeared and the church is still going on, but that's, that's, that's another issue. And uh, uh, he, he caused a storm internationally with what he said in an interview with Maureen Cleave of the Evening Standard. Uh, and the reason it, it caused a storm is because it mirrored what an awful lot of people were thinking at the same time. The church is discredited, it's going, and it's because Jesus' disciples were and are thick. <laughs> they don't understand how to relate to the modern world. Jesus was okay, he had fantastic ideals, but the way the church has been down through history is pretty horrendous. So what do people talk about when they criticize the church and say, that's my reason for not being a Christian? I think there are three things mainly that they talk about. First of all, there's history. What has happened over the last few centuries? Second is hypocrisy. Christians are not what they claim to be. I know this person, lives in our street, goes to church, and do you know where he gets up to? And this whole idea that Christians are absolute hypocrites, they pretend to be so good, so nice, so caring for other people, but actually they're just as selfish and, and, and uh, potentially evil as anybody else. And the third thing is harsh treatment. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, I grew up in a church youth group, or I used to go to church, or I went to see the vicar when my mum needed to be buried, or whatever it is, and the way I was treated was horrendous. And so people have got stories they can trot out about the way the church has behaved. Well, let's have a look at those things. Let's talk about history first. I think when you look back into history and the way the church has been down through the years, there are really five main things that people uh, hit on. First of all, there are the Crusades. All of these Christians going to the Middle East and starting a war and uh, murdering all of those Muslim people. Rivers of blood. Terrible things going on, and all because of these people who said, God w wishes it. Uh, the great war cry of the, the uh, crusader was, Deus, God wants it. We've got to do this because God has sent us slaughter in his name. And people say, it can't be, that can't be right. No sane religion, no healthy religion would behave like that. Then second, there are the witch burnings. <laughs> the uh, fact that uh, uh, people who were usually... Um, either on the autistic spectrum or, or, or just weird uh, in various ways, did not fit in with a community, were taken and accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake, often on very slim evidence. And over at least 100 to 200 years, people suffered and died, and now some of them are being remembered. If you go to Exeter, for instance, and go to the, 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 the Northern Hay Gardens, you'll find there is a, a plaque in there that's been set up by public subscription over the last few years to three girls from North Devon 
who were killed as witches in Exeter. And when you look at the records of the trial, there was no real evidence against them. And people say, well, if that's what Christianity does, then the church is thoroughly corrupt. Third, there's the war with science. Christians have always stood in the way of science, we're told. He opposed Galileo. He was persecuted because what he said didn't seem to fit in with the Bible. They opposed Charles Darwin, evolution, all of those kind of things. And you'll see people coming up with the, the most ridiculous anti-scientific arguments. Christianity is, is, is benighted. It's, it's medieval. It shouldn't uh, have a place in the modern world. Fourth, there are the missionaries. <laughs> we sent out all of these people uh, to the, 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 the rest of the world to plunder other people's civilizations to put them all in Western clothes and make them think like us, give all of their wealth to us and, uh, uh, at the same time. And the missionaries were one way in which we uh, took the wealth of, uh, of Africa and India and China and brought it back home. As one a African leader said, the missionaries came and taught us to pray. When we closed our eyes, we had clothes on. And when we opened our eyes, it had all gone. <laughs> it had all been taken away. Well, is that the case or is it not? And then finally, there are the popes. When you look back in the Middle Ages and see what some of the popes got up to, you think, oh, really? This is organised Christianity? This is the best it can do? This is horrendous. Well, let's just very, very quickly, I'm not going to give you a history lecture tonight, but let's spend a, a couple of minutes on each of those things. First of all, the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades, I would say, if I was challenged about those, the first thing I would want to say is they were not a Christian movement at all. Yes, they were started by a pope, Pope Urban II. At Clermont-Ferrand in France, he made a famous speech in 1095 in which he, he said that uh, the holy places were in the hands of Muslims and Christians must fight to get them back. The Christians of the Middle East were being um, oppressed by these, these, these pagan Muslims and it was important to, to start a war. He also said, if you go there, you will lose all of your sins. <laughs> if you die in battle, wearing the cross, you will go straight to heaven, no purgatory, nothing like that. You pass go, collect 200 pounds, the lot. And uh, the Pope said he could forgive people's sins in that way. I say to it to those who are present, I command that it be said to those who are absent. Christ commands it. All who go thither and lose their lives, be it on the road or on the sea, or in the fight against the pagans, will be granted immediate forgiveness for their sins. This is a grant to all who will march by virtue of the great gift which God has given me. Well, the great gift that God had given him did not include the right to forgive sins. There's only one way that sins are forgiven, and the Bible makes that very clear indeed. So whatever the crusades were, from the very first moment, they were not a Christian movement. And in fact, if you look at the history of the crusades, you find all sorts of horrific, un-Christian things going on. And one fact that not many people know is that the first city that was destroyed by the crusaders was, in fact, a Christian city. <laughs> It wasn't just the fact that Christians hate Muslims and wanted to wipe them out. So many of those crusaders were just out for what they could get. And as they went across towards the Holy Land, uh, they came to a city just outside where uh, Belgrade is nowadays. And uh, they went to a city and demanded uh, food and, uh, and shelter and all of the rest of it for, uh, for um, this Christian army. And they said, you're Christians, you've got to support us. And the city father said, well, mm, okay, uh, you can't come in the city, but you can camp outside, and we will supply your needs. And so they gave them the food they wanted, and it was, it was very harmonious. And that night, some of the young knights went into the city looking for a club or a bar or something, and what they found were girls who did not particularly want to be chatted up. 
and uh, they took, well, to cut a long story short, they behaved themselves disgracefully. They were taken by the city police, such as it was in those days, and uh, they said, well, you know, you're a Christian soldier, so we can't do much to you. All we'll do is we'll take off your armour and send you back to the camp in your underpants. And the next morning, when the, when the uh, uh, crusaders got up, they saw the armour of these knights, three of them, uh, hanging outside the city as a warning to everybody else who wanted to misbehave. And at that point, they decided, these people have got to go. <laughs> and so they took that as an excuse to march into the city, to pillage it, uh, to, to steal all they could, and uh, the city was burned to the ground and everybody was killed. That was the first city that was attacked by the crusaders. Christians attacking Christians. Clearly, Christianity was only paper thin. And, and uh, not to make it too simple, there were good people involved in the Crusades, sadly. Uh, but the greatest hero, it seems to me, was uh, St. Francis. You remember St. Francis of Assisi? He uh, uh, believed the Crusades were wrong and evil. And uh, he went, I think it was on the Fourth Crusade, could have been the Fifth, uh, along with the Crusader army, and uh, insisted on going out beyond the front line to the front line of the opposing side. And when he got to the, the, the Muslim side, they, they thought it was a trick. They weren't sure what was going on. He and uh, one of his friends went, and they said, well, are these two Christians coming? They're unarmed. What do they want? And he said, we just want to talk to your leader. And so Francis spent three days in the camp. And at first they were very suspicious of him. But being Orientals, they thought, well, we must give these people gifts. They've come to see us. And Francis said, I don't want anything. And that's what turned it all. Why would he risk his life coming into a, 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 an enemy army if there was no gain in it for him? And so they began to realize that he was serious and he wanted to talk to them because he wanted to bring peace. He tried to share the gospel with them as well, which didn't go down too big, but uh, the, 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 the opposing leader was incredibly interested, the emir, in what Francis had to say. And if only there had been more people like Francis taking initiatives like that, the horror and the, the stain of the Crusades might never have happened. So I don't think there's a Christian motivation behind that at all. Second, the witchcraft burns. Well, lots of people have written about the burning time as it's come to be called. That's not what they were called traditionally. This is a, an invented old world's phrase over the last few years to make it look as if it was a period of history when everybody was talking about burning witches and it was happening all over the place. And one of the people, of course, who has talked most about it is Dan Brown, who wrote the novel The Da Vinci Code. And uh, he said this, the Catholic Inquisition published the book that arguably could be called the most blood-soaked pu publication in human history. Malleus Maleficarum, or the witch's hammer, indoctrinated the world to the dangers of free-thinking women and instructed the clergy how to locate, torture, and destroy them. Those witches by the church included all female scholars, priestesses, gypsies, mystics, nature lovers, herb gatherers, and any women suspiciously attuned to the natural world. Midwives were also killed for their heretical practice of using medical knowledge to ease the pain of childbirth, a suffering the church claimed that was God's rightful punishment for Eve's partaking of the apple of knowledge, thus giving birth to the idea of original sin. During 300 years of witch hunts, the church burned at the stake an astounding five million women. Well, is that the case? In fact, it's not. Salon magazine published a, a really interesting article recently exploring the latest research that's been done into the witch period and what actually happened. And they, they, they say that, uh, for one thing, there were not five million or, or however many people it was that uh, he was claiming uh, uh, th that were killed. It was something like, like 40,000 at the very most over a century and a half. Stalin 
killed that many of his own men in an afternoon. And uh, it's nothing like as big a thing as it was supposed to be. Also, it wasn't persecution of women, because 80% of those we know to have been killed as witches during that period were men. And so the whole thing has been massively distorted. And Salon said that it wasn't religious reasons that uh, prompted the witch burnings either. Uh, it says, the mass of detail can be numbing, but what it reveals is important. Not a sweeping, coordinated effort to exert control by a major historical player like the church, but something more like the banality of evil. Witch hunts were a collaboration between lower-level authorities and common folk, succumbing to garden variety, pettiness, vindictiveness, superstition, and hysteria. Salon says it was exactly like what was happening in, in the Nazi years in many countries across Europe, where you would inform on the neighbours because you wanted their land. You would uh, uh, tell the police of people that you didn't particularly like who lived down your street. Uh, you would join in the condemnation of Jews because everybody was doing it. And it was low-level vindictiveness. It was people who just didn't like the neighbours very much. It had nothing to do with Christianity or the church. In fact, we find during that period, in many places, the church was trying to stop it. It was saying, look, there is no evidence. There is no reason this should be going on. This is not how Christians should behave. And there's a, 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 a tremendous misconception about uh, all of those uh, historical uh, details. Third, the war with science. Well, Galileo, you've got to say, to start, was a very strange person. <laughs> he was somebody who was spiked by difficult to get on with. And it's probably more his personality than his ideas which made the church treat him fairly harshly. But when I say treat him harshly, he was never sent to prison. The, 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 the worst thing that happened to him was not being allowed to publish some of the things he wrote and not being allowed to move around. And Galileo himself was a very convinced Christian. And despite the fact he'd fallen out with the Catholic Church and their official doctrine, he said, God is known in nature by his works and in doctrine by his revealed word. In other words, I'm exploring nature not because I want to disprove God and dis, dis, explode Christianity. I'm doing it because it's another way of studying the God who's made this wonderful world. Uh, Galileo would have approved completely of having a harvest service as we did this morning because the natural world is a way in which God reveals himself too. And he said, my job is to fit the two of them together. And... Uh, uh, he never gave up on his Christian faith for all of the discoveries he made. Charles Darwin, well, whatever you think of Darwin, again, the conflict has been blown up in a way that was never true in his own day. For one thing, he was a friend to the end of his life with Asa Gray. This is Asa Gray. He was an American biologist, and uh, he's remembered now as one of the, 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 the best botanists, naturalists, and, uh, uh, and biologists that uh, America had in the 19th century. And Asa Gray, as well as those things, was an evangelical preacher. He was an evangelist who led the world to Christ. And he and Darwin had the closest and most respectful relationship you could imagine. I mentioned the other week Frederick Farrar, who wrote A Life of Christ, which has been very helpful in preparing the Sunday mornings this year. And Farrar was a, an English clergyman who uh, was a tremendously uh, uh, devoted Christian, wrote some hymns that are still sung today, and he again was friends with Charles Darwin. In fact, it was Farrar who managed to get Darwin commemorated in Westminster Abbey after his death. And Darwin himself said, in my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a God. He wasn't too sure about the details of his Christian faith, <laughs> and uh, I, I think he never quite got there. But he was always 
confident that there was nothing in his theory that ruled out a God in charge of the universe or even the truth of the Bible. And so, uh, without uh, getting into the whole creation everything, you can see that the war between scientists and the Bible can be simplified massively, and it just wasn't that way. One of the, the uh, things that's uh, uh, made it so divisive, especially in America, was a film a few years ago. You know, if you look at the poster, it's got Spencer Tracy and Gene Kelly in it, so it wasn't exactly made last week. Um, but uh, this film, Inherit the Rind, was a dramatization of the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 1920s, when a young teacher in, in uh, the Midwest America was, was taken to court uh, because he had dared to teach evolution in his classes. He had actually, in court, when he was called to testify, he, he had to admit, I can't remember whether I taught that one or not. And he was uh, put up to it by the American Civil Liberties Union, who desperately wanted to start a case. But when you look at the historical records of what happened, it was a very amiable and amicable affair. And in the film, it's, 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 it's pitched as a, a, a battle between the rednecks who want to keep us in the, the dark ages and, and the courageous lawyer who goes at, into court to try to stand for the truth, whatever it costs him. It just was not that way. And uh, if you inherit the wind into Google and look for the records of the trial, you'll find there are plenty of historical articles online now uh, debunking the whole idea that Christians and scientists have always been at war with one another. It's not that way. And in fact, um, some of the greatest scientists in the world today are Christians. Then we've got the missionaries. How about the missionaries? These people who went out uh, in the 19th century or the 18th century and uh, uh, were really just agents of empire. They were taken in there by a gunboat. And the military uh, said, you will listen to these people and you will worship in the way that they tell you. And so people became Christians. Was it like that? No, it wasn't. Really interesting book uh, a few years ago called The Bible in a Flag was written by Brian Stanley, who was a lecturer at Tyndale College in Bristol. And Stanley is a very, very well-respected um, historian. Uh, you can tell that because he's now got a job at a university in America, which is what happens to well-respected historians from Britain. But uh, he's, he's, he's someone who has looked into the mission movement more than anybody else ever had. And he says it was the other way around. It wasn't that the Bible and the flag went together, that the missionaries were spreading the, the values of Western civilization and promoting the British Empire and ripping off the natives. That's not what happened. He's, and he gives case after case of uh, missionaries who stood against the colonizers, who would be a thorn in the side of businessmen who wanted to, 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 to become rich at the expense of, of, of natives, because they believed that everybody counted in the sight of God, that God loved everybody, whatever color your skin was. And so they believed that it was wrong to exploit. You do know, in 18th century, the... Uh, um, British East India Company, the main base trading company that uh, really did rip off the Indians, had a clause in its charter which said that the company's ships must not carry two kinds of people. One was gentlemen, because they got drunk and uh, started ordering people around and they interfered with the ladies and everybody was annoyed with them. Uh, and the second clause that could not be carried on the ships was missionaries. <laughs> because missionaries gave the uh, the natives' ideas about the fact that they, they had status. They counted to God. God loved them. And uh, when churches started native outposts, that was very bad for trade. And so the missionaries and the colonizers were often at war with one another. If you go to South Africa today, you'll find um, this uh, 
a rather strange part in which they're planting statues of the people who've been biggest in the story of South African liberation. And one of the first statues is a guy at the front there waving his Bible in the air. He's Johannes van der Poel, a rather strange Dutchman who wasn't a Christian for most of his life, and then in his, in his uh, middle years uh, suddenly became a Christian out of the blue and gave the rest of his life to mission. He went to South Africa to work amongst the Hottentots, and the Dutch authorities hated him because he refused to let them take the Hottentot girls to be housemaids and take the Hottentot boys to be unpaid labour. He insisted that they were educated. He built model villages for them. He stood up for them in law courts, and he taught the gospel at the same time. And a, a thriving Hottentot Christian community began, which the Dutch absolutely hated because all of their, that money that could have been going back to Holland if only they'd stayed pagans. And uh, Van der Kamp was just one of many. I can tell you lots of other stories. William Carey in India, still remembered as one of the greatest reformers India ever had. Um, but we didn't time to talk about him. It would take the rest of the evening. Mary Slessor, a Scottish girl, also a great hero, um, uh, a woman who went to Uganda. Um, the uneducated daughter of a guy who was a drunkard and had left Mary and her mother on his, her, her own. She worked uh, uh, her fingers to the bone at home in Aberdeen, trying to keep the family alive, but was convinced that God wanted her out of Africa as well. And so eventually, to cut a long story short, she ended up in uh, what is present-day Uganda, Nigeria, Calabar, and uh, she's still remembered as the White Queen of Calabar because an unmarried, untaught girl went in there and just... just knocked the local um, chiefs' heads together and said, you can't be cannibals, you can't fight one another. Actually, Mary Slessor has a, a connection with Topsham, which is quite interesting. Later on, when her mother was very ill, uh, Mary's supporters gave her enough money to buy a, a house in Topsham, 48 The Strand, where uh, her mother and her sister, who was also very, very ill, went to live for some time. And Mary came back to, to Topsham uh, for a year and a half and lived there too. And uh, sometimes the people who own 48 The Strand will open it for a coffee morning to raise money for charity. And they always put on the wall all of these mementos of Mary which they've kept. And it's a great picture, which I've not seen anywhere else, just on their wall, of Mary Slessor sitting in the midst of a bunch of cannibal chiefs. And she's sitting there and sorting out their grievances. And they're sitting on chairs around her, and she's sitting there doing her knitting. And she was just like that. She was a very ordinary, down-to-earth girl, but she was somebody who did so much good. She's still remembered as one of the greatest things ever to come to Africa. So the missionaries were not like that. One more. That's the popes. I've talked too much about the others, but anyway, let's just fit this one in as well. You've got to say that some of the medieval popes were an interesting bunch. Here's my personal favourite, uh, Benedict the, the Ninth, who was pope three times and didn't do any serious work in any of them. Basically, he was the son of a count, uh, and grew up in a wealthy family. He was related to six previous popes. And this lets the alarm bells ringing to start with, doesn't it? Becoming a pope was something that you could do if you were in a certain title area. If you had money, if you had the privilege, then you stood a chance of getting into the papacy. It had nothing to do with being an especially sanctified figure. It had everything to do with the fact that your family were able to bribe people to get you into a powerful position. He was uh, bought the papacy in his teens. Some accounts say he was 12 years old when he became the father of all Christians worldwide. Hmm. Uh, others accounts say he was 20. But somewhere between 12 and 20, he became Pope. And uh, he was responsible, say the, the, the historians, for many vile adulteries and murders. 
It wasn't uh, just uh, adultery with girls, though he was primarily homosexual, but he wasn't picky. He'd sleep with anything that was around. Um, he carried out orgies and all sorts of things. He, he, he was so annoying in Rome that in 1036 he was forced out. But he came back to the papacy with an army. He came and uh, besieged the place until he made him pope again. Then eight years later, they threw him out again. He came back with another army and continued as pope. He sold the papacy after that because he was fed up with being pope and he wanted to marry his cousin. Then he changed his mind about that and fought his way back again. And his whole career was just an absolute disaster. Finally, he was excommunicated from the church when it came to its senses. But you could do that as a pope in some ways in, in, in the Middle Ages because it was less about spirituality and what Jesus saw as, as a vision for the church. It was more about sheer power, being on top of the heap. And so wealthy families, especially in Italy, would push their uh, uh, sons to enter the, the priesthood, uh, saying, oh, it's all right, you can still sleep with girls on the quiet, that's not a problem, you just can't be married to any of them. And you can be an archdeacon, then a cardinal, then a pope. And so it's nothing to do with spirituality, nothing to do with Christianity, nothing really to do with the church. It's just the church being turned into a career organisation. Okay, so history is one thing. Hypocrisy is another thing. And uh, people talk about three kinds of hypocrisy, mainly these days, I suppose. Abuse, sadly, has been a, a massive, massive question over the last few years. Money's another one. There are many very wealthy churches uh, that don't seem to be doing anything to help anybody else, but they're just amassing funds for themselves. And there's sexual sin, of course. I won't talk much about any of those, but this is one guy who always fascinates me. This is Earl Polk, who built a mega church in America um, uh, between, I, I think, about 1980 and, and a few years ago. And uh, Earl Polk had a disgustingly uh, prolific uh, career of, of sexual indiscretions. And uh, his, his uh, nephew is now leading what was left behind of his church. And uh, they've just discovered that his nephew was actually his son. Apart from all of the other women he had affairs with, he had an affair with his, his own brother's wife and produced uh, the baby, Donnie Earl, who's now leading the church. And it's a church which, because of Paul Polk's terrible career, has just slipped further and further and further away from what the gospel is all about. And as you'll see in the Daily Mail article on the right there, uh, this mega church pastor, Donnie Earl, uh, Polk, who discovered age 34 that his archbishop uncle was his father, he's now found peace by opening a radically inclusive church in Atlanta that reveres Muhammad as well as Christ. And it's an all-inclusive, believe what you like, as long as you come aboard and give me your money kind of church. When you look at that kind of thing, there's rank hypocrisy going on, isn't there? Then there's harsh treatment. This is Sinead O'Connor tearing up uh, the Pope's picture on American television, as she did because of the things that she said the Catholic Church was responsible for. And that uh, you may have seen on television over the last few weeks, a series which has just concluded called The Woman in the Wall. It's about what's been happening in Ireland. Where between 1922, the start of the Irish Free State, and 1996, when the last one was closed, there were Magdalen laundries all over Ireland. And in those, we reckon, 1,000 girls at least who had become pregnant uh, outside, outside marriage were uh, admitted and then basically turned into slaves. They'd work long hours every day for very little money. When the baby arrived, they would nurse it for two years and then the baby would be taken away from them and sold to raise money from the church, for the church, from prospective parents who wanted to adopt these supposedly unwanted babies. 
and it's been a tremendous scandal. It's what the whole thing is about. And uh, the Irish state has paid a large amount of money to compensate the women involved. Not one penny has gone into those funds from any of the organisations that were responsible for that. So, what can you say to all of this stuff? History, hypocrisy, um, harshness, treatment, all of these things may be overblown in some cases, but there's a, a terrible level of truth in there. What can you say? Can you really defend the church when all of these things are going on? Doesn't it look a long way, long way different from what the New Testament says? Let me give you ten very quick reasons. Okay, hold on your seats because this is going to be uh, a quick one. Number one, Jesus said it was going to be like this. Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds, do you remember? About the farmer who gets up in the morning and his servants say, look, somebody's been and planted weeds all over your wheat field. Uh, in the night, shall we pull it all up? And the farmer says, no, it's got to stay that way until the harvest, and then we sort it out. And Jesus wasn't talking about farming uh, tips and, and hints. What he was doing was saying, this is the way it's going to be with my movement. There are going to be wheat, genuine, real Christians, and weeds. People who look like it and talk, talk but don't actually walk the walk. And they'll all be side by side. And they won't ever be rooted out. You won't get the perfect church free from sin until the end of the harvest. But when you reach the end, then there will be a separation. And we'll see who the real people are who've been standing for, for, for the church. And the problem with talking about the errors of the church is that people focus all the time on the weeds. And uh, when you look around the Christian world and you get to know some of the churches that there are in every corner of the globe who are doing a great job, where lives have been transformed, where society has been touched and helped and healed by ordinary people who don't want to place in the history books, who are insignificant, who are unknown, but have still done a massive, massive job for the Lord Jesus. Then you begin to realise the wheat and the weeds are growing together, and Jesus said it was going to be that way. Second, of course, lots of people claim to be Christians who aren't. <laughs> Do you remember when Samuel was sent to uh, anoint uh, one of uh, Jesse's sons as, as king of Israel, the new king of Israel. The first thing he saw when he walked into the farmyard was a boy called Eliab, the eldest one. Big, strong, impressive one. And Samuel said to himself, ah, that's the guy. And uh, God immediately said to him, no, Samuel, it's not. <laughs> and he said, people look at the outward appearance, God looks at the inside. And uh, that's, that's an important principle, isn't it? We can see things on the outside that look great, and we can be deceived, because we can't really see what's going on in people's hearts. And there will be weeds, and there will be wheat growing together. And lots of people who claim to be Christians definitely are not. Sometimes it becomes pretty obvious. You can see by the, the behavior of folks who claim a Christian conviction that they're living for themselves. They just want to satisfy themselves. They have their own agenda. They're not genuinely, at heart, born again. But it's often hard to tell uh, who's where in that one. Third thing, just because something's done in the name of God doesn't mean it's anything to do with, with him. Uh, the, the people responsible for that flaming cross there have got a tremendous statement of faith. I once read the Ku Klux Klan statement of faith. And it's brilliant. It's orthodox. It's slightly reformed, but not extremist. It's, it's just a nice statement of Christian doctrine. And yet they'll burn uh, crosses like that on a, a, a black family's lawn. They'll burn down black churches. Uh, they, they, they'll persecute people who, who stand out against their campaign of terror, which is basically driven by greed and insecurity. 
and it's got nothing to do with God. The Ku Klux Klan holds Bible camps every summer for young people to go and learn about the Bible. But what they're taught is full of racial hatred as well as Bible truth. And just because something's done in the name of God doesn't mean it's got anything to do with the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Number four, in every generation, right down through history, you will find Christians who are amazing. Even at the worst times in the church's history, there have been people there, and they've often not been the ones in the, in, in, in the, the headlines, not all the famous people, who really represent what Christianity is all about, and they're the ones who keep it going. One of the famous medieval poems in English is Piers Plowman. I had to do this when I was at college. And it was a heartening thing to read as a Christian because uh, Pierce Plowman is a, is a poem about corruption in a country where the church has, has got fat and wealthy, has lots of power, but has absolutely no real convictions left. And Pierce Plowman is a preacher to his friends, an example to his neighbours, somebody who's never going to have much money, whose clothes are all threadbare, but who believes the gospel and lives it. And Langland writes his poem to show that there are people out there who may not be in fancy ecclesiastical dress, may not live in bishops' palaces, but nonetheless have got something that has transformed their lives that not everybody who claims to be a Christian has experienced. Then uh, about the same time, you find Brother Lawrence's book being written, The Practice of the Presence of God. Written by Brother Lawrence... He was just a monk in a, a, a monastery where he wasn't even able to get to chapel much more to, to, to pray because uh, he was employed in the kitchen and he produced a good supper. He was so busy all day long, he couldn't do the spiritual exercise that many of the monks were able to do all day long. And it started to be noticed that he was somebody a bit special because he had a living connection with God that many of the high-ups in the monastery didn't have. And it was an actual fact. Uh, a, a bishop who came to him and said, look, you know how to be in the presence of God even when you're banging away in the kitchen doing the washing up. Tell me the secrets. And from those secrets that Brother Lawrence told him, this book came to be written, not by Lawrence, but by his, his uh, uh, influential uh, priestly uh, admirer. And the book is now available in just about every language in the world in all sorts of different editions. I mean... Helps. It's out of copyright, so anybody can do a copy of it for nothing. But uh, it, just, it just goes everywhere. Because what he had is just a humble priest who, whom nobody knew anything about in his own day was something that was real and vital and Bible-based and valuable. Ch uh, Geoffrey Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales. And you remember what they are? They're a story about people uh, travelling to Canterbury on pilgrimage. And some of them, again, are churchmen who are frauds, hypocrites, interested in wealth, interested in women. And Chaucer spares no, 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 time, uh, no time on them. He just pours scorn on them and shows what exactly what they were like. But, you know, there's one character there. The poor parson of a town. <laughs> and what Chaucer says about him, this is Middle English, but never mind. He was a shepherd and not a mercenary. He was after money. And though he holy were and virtuous, he was to sinful men, not despite us. He didn't despise sinful men. Now of his speech, dangerous Nadine. He wasn't threatening and he wasn't arrogant. But in his teaching, discreet and benign. And he paints an unforgettable picture of this guy. And although the stories in the Canterbury Tales are told by all of these characters, his is not a story. His is a sermon. And scholars believe that 
Chaucer never finished the Canterbury Tales, but if he had done, the parson of the town was going to be the final voice to speak. And Chaucer was holding up and saying, look, this is what it should be like. This is what real Christianity looks like. Even in an age like ours, where we've lost the gospel, we've lost all connection with the truth, this is still going on. Another person that absolutely um, uh, fascinates me is this woman. That looks like a modern picture, but it's just the best we can do to do a reconstruction of what she must have looked like. This is Lady Jane Grey, who was Queen of England for about nine days. And then, as you probably know, she was uh, imprisoned and then put to death. Uh, and it was sheer politics. She was just caught up in something that she had no power. She didn't want to be queen. She wept when she told it that she was being uh, given uh, the, the, the crown. And she knew exactly what it would lead to, and it led to her death. But what people don't know so much about Lady Jane Grey, who was only about 17, was that she was a Christian who really understood the Bible. She'd studied it uh, at, at home again and again and again. She'd written lots of letters. We've got the letters still, which showed just how deep her understanding was of what the gospel really is. And uh, as she uh, was condemned to die, um, she wrote uh, her last letter to God. She said this, Shall I despair of thy mercy, O God? Far be that from me. I am thy workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Give me grace, therefore, to tarry thy leisure, and patiently to bear thy works, assuredly knowing that as thou canst, so thou wilt deliver me, when it shall please thee. Nothing doubting or distrusting thy goodness towards me. For thou knowest better what is good for me than I do. And for a girl of 17 to face death with that sort of heroism just says to me, she knew what it was about. She knew Jesus and she trusted him. So that's four things. We've got a few more to go. Let me just finish these. Five, the church has done more good than any other social institution. If you look down through history, there has been no other organization in history for all of the wrong that it's done in so many ways that's done as much good as the church does. 85% of the hospitals in the world were started by Christians. You look back to the days of the early church and you find them doing things that had never been seen in the Roman Empire before. Visiting prisoners who had nobody else to look after them, taking them in food, not because they were Christians, but just because they loved them. Picking up babies who'd been exposed on the hillside at night. You, it was legal to, if you didn't want a child and you were the father, to take the newborn child and just leave it on the hillside. If the slavers didn't get it, the wolves would. And the Christians used to go around the hills outside Rome picking up babies, taking them home and looking after them. Not because they had lots of money and could look after lots of children, but just because they thought every human life was precious. And the church has done more good than any other social institution. Another thing is that being part of a church is good for your mental and physical health. The research we've seen just recently uh, uh, says that um, there are certain things you can do that make you healthier. One of them is regular physical exercise, which can add three to five years to your life. Another one is a proven therapeutic regimen. In other words, good uh, programs of exercise or health or whatever. And that adds 2.1 to 3.7 years to your life. Or regular religious attendance, 1.8 to 3.1 years. <laughs> the church is a health move. <laughs> Coming to church is good for you. You live a bit longer as a result of that. Now, is it just because, well, it's, it's people getting together and they're warm and friendly with one another? No, because other types of groups that do that don't have the same benefits. Here's another study. We found that volunteerism and involvement in social organisations only accounted for a little less than one year of the longevity boost that religious affiliation provided. There's still a lot of the benefit of religious affiliation that this can't explain. 
There's only one explanation. <laughs> when you become a Christian, your life is shared with other people in the family of God. It's the way life is supposed to be. And therefore you flourish and things go better for you. Quick, people don't fake nine pound notes. <laughs> Nobody ever does that, do they? You fake a 10 pound note. And if there are hypocrites and fakes around in the church, they are copying something that might just be real. You don't copy something that doesn't exist. And so that's a, a cheap point, but sometimes it's, it's a good one to use. Eight, just because you disagree with people doesn't mean you hate them. It's not that Christians hate their, their people who are not like them. It's often uh, put that way. And uh, uh, people who are on the other side of various questions, whether it's Richard Dawkins or, or uh, gay liberation people or, or whatever, they try to pretend that Christians hate them. Christians stand against them. It isn't always that way. I remember uh, when I did university missions, I used to uh, uh, take along a guy called uh, uh, Martin Hallett with me. He'd come in just for one day on each mission. And he was somebody who'd come out of the gay scene and founded a thing called True Free Trust, which still exists. Because he believed that in Jesus Christ there is the answer to what people are looking for when they start to question their sexuality. And he believed that his life had been turned over in a way that he didn't deserve. As a result, he loved gay people. He really did. And I remember sitting in a, 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 a meeting, I've maybe told us before at, at Great Parks, at lunchtime where the Christian societies and the gay societies got together. And for the first half hour, the atmosphere was just so tense and so taut, you couldn't believe it. After an hour, well, that was the end of the lunch hour, so the Christians left <laughs> and went back to do their lectures. The gays stayed around, just talking to Martin Hallett. Because the penny dropped, he really cared about them. And uh, I remember at the end of that mission, uh, two weeks later, I got hold of the Christian Union president and said, so how's it gone since then? He said, well, you know, after that meeting, the president of the Gay Society came to talk to us and said, listen, one thing we've realized about you Christians is you really do care for us. He said, we've got all sorts of people in this university who say, oh, my friends are gay, I don't care about gay. But actually, we know what they're saying behind our backs. And he said, you people, you disagree with us openly, but you love us. And he said, can we do some stuff together? And so for at least one term, I dropped out of touch with them after that, I know that the Christian Union and the Gay Society were holding joint activities together. Rambles out in the countryside, get to know you evenings, all sorts of things. And it wasn't a, a recruitment thing. The, the Christians weren't just trying to evangelize insincerely, and the gays weren't dancing around to see who there was that they could, they could pinch. But uh, it was just... Two groups of people getting to know one another on the basis of real love. And uh, just because you disagree with people doesn't mean you hate them. Number nine, the church is a family, not a firm. Organized religion is often not what Jesus is about. But the church is an organism. I'm the vine, said Jesus. You are the branches. And the life of Jesus flows into his church. And at its best, Christians are brothers and sisters of one another all over the world. It doesn't matter what label is put on you, Anglican, Baptist, Methodist, whatever it happens to be. If you're a genuine Christian, then you're a brother or a sister of every other Christian in the world. Number 10, this is the final one. Never mind the fan club, what about the star? If you look at the church, you will always have mixed messages coming from it. You'll see dirt and evil and selfishness, corruption, because the weeds and the wheat grow together. And you'll see greatness, heroism, love, tremendous stuff as well, but you'll get a mixed message. 
Because human duties are fallible. We live in a fallen world, and the church makes mistakes again and again and again. And Christians are only on their way to becoming what Jesus wants them to be. They're not there yet. But what about the star? To use the church as an excuse to ignore Jesus is late. And it's when you look at him and know what other Christians are like that the whole thing starts to fall into place. Well, we've looked at an awful lot of stuff tonight and we can't, we can't do any more. We've got to, shall we sing the, the, the you think, Steve? Okay, uh, in that case, we're going to take another three minutes to sing a hymn. And if you disagree with that, then it's Steve, you throw stones at afterwards. <laughs> not me. But, uh, but it's a great hymn that he's chosen, which...